Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, I pray that as we continue our worship, that you would gather up our our thoughts and our hearts, our affections. I pray that you would enable us to hear what it is that you have for us today, that you would meet each one according to his need, according to his understanding, according to his faith, and that you would minister to each one to build us up in this most holy faith and to build us up in this faith together with the recognition that your goal is to form a new sanctuary, a human sanctuary that ultimately is comprised of the whole creation. So again, Father, capture our hearts and minds. Enable us to see what you have for us today. Lead out my thoughts, my words. Make them clear to your people. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we enter into a very familiar chapter this week, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Very familiar to many Christians. But I think so often as with familiar passages that, that we tend to memorize or become very familiar with, we can isolate them uh, from their larger context. And again, this is a part of, of an epistle in which the writer is dealing with very real issues that these Hebrews were wrestling with, very real, real-life issues of, of persecution and suffering, doubt, insecurity, all sorts of temptations to depart from Jesus himself, if not whole cloth, at least by way of, again, a reshaping or a rethinking of who he is and what it is to, uh, to know him, what it is to regard him as the Messiah. And we saw in this, this closing exhortation of chapter 11, that the, or chapter 10, that the writer essentially said all of the challenges that they were facing, all of the things that were coming against them, the answer to that was persevering in faith, persevering faith. And he didn't say that would make their difficulties go away. In fact, it would make them get worse. Persevering in Jesus would not lighten their load, at least in terms of the the suffering, the persecution that was coming against them because of having embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, They would only see that increase, or at least they could expect to see it increase. But on the other hand, departing from Jesus, rounding the edges uh, to whatever extent departing from him, would see a lessening of that persecution, but it wouldn't bring the peace that perhaps they were seeking. Because by departing from Jesus, they would actually be departing from the God of Israel. 
And even more, they would be, or in addition to that, they would be departing, they would be forsaking their own Abrahamic heritage. And recall again that as Jewish believers, the incentive to them, what they were being pressed with, the incentive was you need to return to the God of Israel. You need to forsake Jesus and in that way return to the God of Israel. Return to your Israelite heritage. Return to become once again a part of the Abrahamic household. But the truth was that by forsaking Jesus as Messiah, they would actually be walking away. They would be renouncing their Abrahamic heritage. Because Abraham and all those who followed after him as his faithful children, those who could legitimately claim to be Abraham's children, were those who lived with the same conviction and confidence that he had. They lived in light of the covenant and its promises, all of which looked to and found their fulfillment in Jesus himself as the Messiah of Israel. And so the irony is that this temptation, this pressure to return to their heritage, to return to the God of Israel, was really a temptation to forsake him. It had been the faithful in Israel, faithful in the sense of holding to the God who had promised, holding to what he had promised, holding to what the covenant represented and the way in which God would bring that to fruition, again, focusing on the Messiah. That was what the Abrahamic mandate was all about. That was what it meant that the faithful in Israel were those who lived according to the faith of Abraham himself. And that becomes the backdrop then for the writer to go into this what it, passage that is often called the roll call of faith, where he traces out in, in a kind of moving through Israel's history from beginning to end, he touches on high points of individuals characterized by faith. Those who lived as children of Abraham in the light of trusting the God who had promised that he would indeed bring about what it was that he had said he would, what he had enacted, what he was working out, that he would bring that to fruition. And that's what this roll call of faith is all about. They're not a bunch of individual people who believed in God so they could go to heaven. And I know I'm being facetious, but that wasn't the point. It was this heritage of faithfulness in trusting the God who had promised that he would do this great work of renewal and restoration that had Israel at the center. He would do that in and through the Abrahamic people on behalf of the world, on behalf of the whole creation. So that's what we're going to find in chapter 11. But before he begins to uh, talk about those individuals, he stops and he gives what's kind of a, a synopsis of faith. And that's what I'd like to consider today. There's really three parts to this, and then we'll, we'll read this section. But uh, he first gives what's kind of not a technical definition of faith, but a sort of working definition, a practical sense of, okay, what is faith? And then he he says, that was the faith. That was what we're talking about when we talk about the men of old who were faithful. That's what we're getting at. And then he exemplifies that even as a starting point in what faith looks like with respect to the world that God has created. 
He exemplifies what does faith look like in practice by dealing with the created order itself. So backing up just to finish this off again in chapter 10 and then through the first three verses of Hebrews 11. He says, you need to remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers, standing alongside those who were treated in that way. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your livelihood, your property, the things of which your lives consisted, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. And so don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you, will re- you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while he was coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not those, however, who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So there are really three parts to this, each corresponding to the three verses, the first three verses of chapter 11, and that's how I'd like to treat it today. So in terms of his general definition in verse 1, there are two parts to that. He says, faith is, this is in the NAS, it's the assurance of things hoped for, and secondly, it's the conviction of things not seen. And what's really at the heart of this, and, and, and I want to kind of preface this by saying that in some ways this is a very challenging passage. It seems very straightforward, but again, the challenge is in the fact that faith is a part of our Christian jargon, right? It's probably one of the more common words that we use. And yet, if you were to ask 100 Christians, what's the definition of faith? What does faith really mean? What does it mean to live by faith? What is righteousness by faith? What are these concepts? You'd probably get a whole bunch of different ideas. And faith is one of those words that we use a lot, but we don't typically stop to think about what we're really getting at and how we would define that. We can view it all the way from an appointed mechanism. Uh, If we do this thing called faith, then we get to go to heaven, uh, down to it's just kind of wishful thinking and a trusting in God. I have faith that if this is what I pray about, then God's going to do it and everything in between. So my hope today is to kind of narrow this in and focus it a little bit more so we can understand what the writer is getting at and ultimately then why why it is or how it is that we can profit from this in the sense that if the answer to the challenges of life is persevering faith, then we we have to know what that is. What does it look like to have faith? What does it mean to live by faith? So in terms of the first part then, this two-part working definition, the first is that faith relates to God's purpose. And you say, well, how do you get there? The idea here in this first part is that faith brings the future into the present. 
Faith is, if you will, the substantiating or the giving substance to that which is hoped for, that which lies in the future. And here again, the idea of hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is is a mind set on what God has pledged, what God has purposed, what God is going to do. So faith is tied to this idea of God's purpose. It gives substance. It brings into the present that which lies in the future. It pertains to what God has disclosed, what God has promised, what God has made known is his intent and his design, not our wishes, not our longings, not our own personal hopes. And so in that way, faith both looks backward and forward. Just like we talked about the prophets, the way that they encouraged and exhorted Israel was to point them back to their past with God and let that faithfulness, putting in context what they had experienced in their walk with God so that they could understand their present and and ultimately where their present was leading. In other words, they could situate themselves and their circumstances in the larger story that they were a part of. Faith looks backwards as well as forward. It views future fulfillment with a certainty. It brings that into the present as if it exists. It views it with a certainty because it recognizes that what's to come builds on what God's already done. See, our tendency is to look at everything as discrete and separate. Even when we read the Old Testament, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this, then there's this king, then there's this, and then there's that. And we have a hard time seeing the threads that bind everything together. But this is really at the heart of how it is that we can say, as he's going to, that this sort of faith is what commended the fathers, the elders, those who went before, what he calls in the NES the the men of old is the way it's rendered. You see, we often want to say, we we argue because we're thinking about faith versus works. How do you get saved? And we say, okay, before Christ came, were people still saved by faith or was it by works? And we say, well, no, it couldn't have been by works. It had to have been by faith. So therefore, that's the sense in which they had faith like we have faith. But the way that the writer is understanding this, what, what makes faith this constant is the sameness of faith from era to era to era before Christ, after Christ, is that it is a confidence in what God is going to do, what God has said he's going to do based on what he's already done. There's a linearity. There's a progressiveness. Everything is connected. And so wherever God's faithful have sat on that continuum of the outworking of his purpose. They've sat in the same place of drawing upon his faithfulness in the past for the assurance of what it is that he will do. And in that sense, that confidence allows them to give substance to what lies in the future. The God who has been faithful will continue to be faithful, not just because it's his character, but because his past faithfulness is 
working towards the accomplishing of his purpose. So his present and future faithfulness also is working in that purpose. So faith is tied in the first instance to this thing of God's purpose. It's, faith isn't just arbitrary belief. It's not just arbitrary confidence. I think God is good. Okay, what does that mean? I don't know. I just think he's good. And here's what I need, or here's what I want, or here's what I lack. I believe God for this. I believe God for that. You know, flipping through the Bible, finding arbitrary promises that we can claim for ourselves, or however we do it. That's not what the writer is getting at here. That's not how faith really works. So faith is tied to God's purpose, but the second thing is that faith also stands on God's veracity, meaning his integrity and his truthfulness. That's the second piece where he says, it is the conviction of things not seen. What it means is that faith certifies Faith authenticates as true and as real that which isn't seen, that which is not available to our senses. Faith authenticates as true and real what we can't authenticate with our senses. It looks beyond circumstances. It looks beyond appearances, what, again, our senses can encounter and process. It looks beyond that to the God who has spoken and acted. And again, faith doesn't authenticate whatever we think or whatever we want or whatever we hope for or whatever we happen to think God is going to do. What it certifies is and authenticates is as real and true is the God who has spoken and acted. And so in terms of this working definition, there are a couple summary things that I'll, I'll put out there. The first thing is that in, in a certain sense, then faith is a new faculty of perception and understanding. Beyond our natural faculties of perception and understanding. What are our natural faculties? We have five senses, and then we have a brain that processes that data. Everything, if you had none of your five senses, you would be unaware of anything that exists outside of you. All you would have is your own thoughts. Everything that comes to us, when you read a book, what you're doing is images are going through your eyes and creating electrochemical signals that your brain is processing and interpreting. We have natural faculties of perception and understanding. Faith is another faculty. It affords a new capacity of insight and understanding. Faith as a faculty doesn't set aside or supplant our natural faculties. It's not checking our brains at the door. It's not ignoring what our senses tell us. Faith actually 
brings an enablement to our natural faculties so that now that process of sensory data that our minds are processing and reaching conclusions concerning, now those natural faculties actually function and are effectual in their functionality as God intends. If you will, sight now becomes insight. Remember God's indictment of Israel, seeing they don't perceive, hearing they don't understand. Their eyes worked, but they didn't really see. Their ears worked, but they didn't really hear. And so faith works with our natural faculty so that those faculties are actually now serving us in a way where they're, they're instruments of, of, of accurate perception, accurate insight. And then here's the third implication, which again is something that we don't tend to think about when we think of faith, which is that faith is fundamental to human existence, man as truly human. Faith is fundamental to man as truly human. And I think that becomes a little bit more evident when we recognize that faith and faithfulness go together. We tend to think of faith as believing the right information, and we say, well, how is that essential to what it is to be human? But hopefully as I open this up, it will become more clear. Faith is, is fundamental to what it means to be truly human. Man as divine image son who perceives the way God perceives, who thinks the way God thinks, who judges the way God judges. I've said it many times. When Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father, he wasn't talking about his deity. He was talking about his humanness. That when you see the man Jesus, you see a true, the icon of God, Hebrews 1, the, the image of the invisible God. Jesus' thoughts so perfectly correspond with his father's. His words, his notions, his will, his affections, all of those are so perfectly synced with his father that you see in him the truth of who God is. That's what faithfulness is all about. So I want to skip over the, the by verse 2, by, uh, by it the men of old gained approval and, and jump forward to the verse 3 and then come back because I think that seeing now how this looks in practice is important. Then we can say that's the kind of faith that commended the men of old. So what does this look like? Okay, that's fine in theory. What does this look like in practice? Well, the first thing that I want to do is deal a little bit with this idea of the relationship between faith and meaning and truth. Faith and meaning and truth, they go together. And first of all, faith doesn't deny facts. Faith doesn't deny or alter or disregard facts or material reality. Faith doesn't deny or set aside or alter, per se, what our natural senses tell us. It's, you know, are you going to believe God or are you going to believe your lying eyes? It, faith doesn't deny facts. It reaches beyond them to discern their meaning. 
and therefore to discern truth. Because the truth of a thing, we, it's another word we use all the time, truth, truth, truth. What do you mean by truth? The truth of a thing consists in that thing's conformity to its nature and its intended purpose. Not the fact of its existence. In other words, you, you can look at, at, at a fact, you know, the, the composition of a chemical compound, but that's not the truth of the compound in the biblical sense. Truth is a thing's conformity to its nature and intended purpose, not the mere fact of its existence. From the scripture standpoint, when word and deed coincide perfectly, that's truth. This is the sense in which all people are, in their fallenness, liars, because word and deed don't perfectly coincide. This is the sense in which you can say, as Torrance does, and I agree rightly, and other people as well, God's being is identical with his words and works. Because God says what he says is, 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 is perfectly consistent with who he is. What he does is perfectly consistent with that. That's the sense in which God is true. Who he is, it's really even in his covenant name, I am what I am. Who are you? I am that I am. I am that I am. God is who he shows himself to be through his words and his deeds. You want to know what the being of God is like? You look at what he says and you look at what he does. Now, in the context of our fallen world, that's not true. And often, you know, we even use the excuse we, when, when, when we say something we shouldn't or whatever, do something we shouldn't, we say, oh, you know my heart. That's not really me. You know, I'm really better than what I said or what I did or whatever. But with God, his words and his deeds perfectly coincide as truth and they show you the truth of who God is. That's the sense in which the truth of God is ultimately and fully manifest in Jesus himself. He is the quintessential summary word and deed of God. So faith and truth and meaning work in that sort of a way. The truth is in the meaning of a thing. That's where truth is found. And faith grasps at that. So as it pertains to the created order, then, we say that the truth of the creation is found in its purpose for existing, not in its material properties and principles and features. We can say, here's how the material universe came into being, or not how. Here's, in a sense, the processes that define the material universe, but that doesn't tell you the truth of the universe. Because the truth of a thing consists in its meaning. Meaning is, an, is a matter of a thing's purpose. So the truth of the creation is in its why. 
Not it's what. Not it's when. Not it's how. And really, ultimately, not even just in its who, but in its why. And if you don't think that's the case, then read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, because that's the point of the creation account. Not the processes of energy cooling and forming matter and stars forming and exploding and getting heavier elements. The scripture's not concerned with all of that. It tells you the purpose of the creation based on the God behind the creation. So the truth of the creation is found in its purpose. And the why of it lies beyond the reach of human inquiry. Even if we could fully plumb all natural knowledge of the universe, it wouldn't answer the question of why. That lies beyond human inquiry. It's of that understanding, that truth, that meaning is only accessible to faith. In the sense that faith discerns God's own revealed purpose for the creation and his faithfulness to it. So as the writer exemplifies the creation, He's drawing out at least these two basic premises. First, that faith begins with the God who is truth. Concerning this, you know, when we look at the world that God has created, even if we look at ourselves, everything that exists, understanding the truth of that thing begins with the God who created. Why? Because a thing is what its nature and function are, who decides the nature and the function of something, the one who created it. So God is the point of reference in the understanding of the truth of anything. He's the reference point for the truth of any created thing. He determines the meaning of a thing because it exists according to his purpose for it, not our perception of it not our scientific analysis of it. And that's as true of a human being as it is of the material universe and the powers and the forces and the principles that govern the universe. So he says, first first then, faith understands that the ages were prepared by the word of God. Now, some versions say the worlds or the universe was made um, by the word of God. And it kind of moves the meaning away. It shifts the, the emphasis of what the writer's actually getting at. If, if we simply see the text saying, faith tells us that God spoke the universe into existence. Okay, that's not untrue but it falls short of really the significance of what the writer's getting at. Then we're just simply saying that we believe that the material universe came about by God speaking words. And that's a matter of faith. That's how it happened. End of discussion. Let's move on. But what he actually says is the ages were prepared by the word of God. 
He doesn't say universe. He doesn't say the worlds. He says the ages. And the, the connotation there is on the ideas of origin, development, direction, destiny. Ages expresses motion, not just material existence, but motion, right? Direction, purpose, destiny. And that's also emphasized in the fact that he doesn't say God created the universe. He says God prepared the ages. The idea of preparation shows intentionality, intent intent behind it, purpose, design, arrangement. The writer is associating our percept, he says, the truth of the creation. Faith appropriates and discerns the truth of the creation. And what does that look like? It looks like understanding God's intent and goal in creating, not merely the fact that he created, not merely the fact that he created by his words. Faith discerns the meaning of the creation, and the meaning of the creation lies in the purpose for which it was created. That's what the writer is saying. And that's much more important and much more significant, I think, to our understanding of what faith is than simply saying, okay, you know, this didn't just happen by some whatever, uh, you know, principles of the cosmos or something, some, some you know, thing that has nothing to do with, with God. No, it was God and he spoke it. Okay, well, we'll argue about that. But he says that's not what faith does is say, no, God did it. But to recognize that there is a significance, the purpose for the creation. So faith recognizes not merely that God used words to create out of nothing, but that his words, the idea of him speaking this, is that his articulation, his, his speaking out, gives manifest voice to his intent and his scheme, his purpose, his arrangement. God says, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. It's not just that words are some kind of power that can accomplish something. It's that God is expressing outwardly. He's making manifest what is in his own mind and heart, his own intent. That's the idea that's being communicated there. He's giving voice to his own intent and scheme, his plan, his arrangement, a created order that he would flood with his own power, love, wisdom, and goodness, and that through a particular created being. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 tell us. And even if you go and you look at Psalm 33, and look at that this week, I won't read it today, but that's another place where it says God spoke into existence this created order. And look at the larger context of Psalm 33 as the psalm of worship and praise. It, it focuses or emphasizes the purposefulness of God's creation. Not just the fact that God did this, but the significance of him doing it and where that finds the worshiper in the center of that purpose. That's what Psalm 33 focuses on. So faith then, he says, understands that God prepared the ages, that the whole flow and structure of this 
by his word. And it understands also that what is observed didn't originate from what appears. That's the second part of verse 3. The NES says, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. It's the idea of what we observe, what we can observe, did not originate from what we can observe. Observable reality has its source in something not accessible to our senses. But again, because truth concerns meaning and meaning is found in divine intent, his point is that observation cannot tell us the truth of the creation. It can tell us facts about the creation. It cannot tell us the truth of the creation. It cannot tell us the who, but even more, it cannot tell us the why. This is the quandary with, you know, the whole origin of the cosmos thing, even the Big Bang. Uh, even if we can say, okay, we can, we can trace all of, of uh, the universe and its motion and its matter and energy back to a singularity point at a certain point in time, can't go back of that. Where did that come from? Who's behind that or what's behind that? Where did that come from? We can't answer that. Science can't answer that. It cannot give us that truth. And even if we say, okay, well, the scriptures tell us that the truth is that God was behind that singularity point of all the energy in the universe concentrated at a single point. Still, that's not the ultimate truth. The truth is why? And that's bound up in the person and the intent of God himself. So he uses the creation of, as an example of how faith really works to get at truth, but truth being a matter of meaning that is bound up in God himself, who's the creator. And that's why faith can't be separated from the God who is and the God who speaks and the God who acts. And that leads us then to verse 2. That is the kind of faith by which the men of old gained approval, by which they were attested is the idea. They, They were testified to. And the first thing that I want to mention in this, as I, I did kind of at the outset, is that the writer is affirming that those, he, he's telling his Hebrew writers that your Hebrew forefathers also were characterized by this faith that I'm calling you to hold to. And we want to again say, well, of course that's the case, because otherwise they would have been saved by their works and not by faith. But that's not the argument that he's making. He's talking about faith in the sense that that we've been talking about it today. Faith concerns the God who is, the God who speaks, who he, he, his speech is reflective and expressive of who he is and he acts according his his words and his deeds are the same and those things are constructed according to his own purpose and promise that themselves reveal him and so faith then is a human attribute in the truest sense faith is not just a mechanism to get to heaven. It it really is expressive of human existence in the truest sense. 
Because it's seeing things the way God sees them. It's perceiving the way he perceives. It's thinking the way he thinks. It's judging the way he judges. Faith is what it means when you say, when you see me, you see the Father. And I say that's at the very heart of what it is to be human because man is image bearer, right? Man is the image and likeness of God. The closer that we correspond to God, the more truly human we are. The seduction of the fall was that man would become more truly human by establishing himself independent of God. And in that separation, only even in the very depth of his being, not even in his behavior, but that deviation in his being was in the first instance, sin and death. Man's departure from the truth of who he is. So faith is is a human attribute. It's the essence of what it is to be human and therefore fully expressed in Jesus. People often say Jesus didn't have faith because he was sinless. He didn't have to do this thing called faith in order to be saved, faith versus works. He did the works, we do the faith. We say Jesus didn't have faith because he didn't need to be saved. But he did have faith. Faith in the sense that he lived the perfect human life. He lived a life of perfect conformity to his father's mind and will and heart, right? We can call that faithfulness. And Paul talks about how this faith in the Messiah is grounded in the faithfulness of the Messiah. That he came into the world to fulfill his own place in God's scheme, which was that he would embody Israel himself as the true Abrahamic seed and accomplish Israel's identity and vocation on behalf of the world. He was faithful to the purpose of God. He bound himself to God according to the truth of God's own design and intent and purpose. Jesus was a man of faith. So faith has now attained its destiny in the fullness of the times. That's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 3 when he says, before faith came, we were shut up under the law. And people have stumbled over that and said, oh, so he's saying that before Jesus came, everybody was saved by their works and not by faith, and they're missing his point. He's saying that the relationship that existed between God and the Abrahamic people was according to this thing called Torah, not faith in the Messiah until Messiah came, who himself embodies Torah. Faith in Torah or conformity to Torah has now become conformity to the Messiah, who is the one who in himself fulfills Torah. So faith has now attained its destiny with the coming of the Messiah, but that implies, and the scripture teaches, that faith was always moving towards that goal. If it attains its destiny in the Messiah, then then it was moving towards that goal, moving in scope and in object, but not in its nature. Faith, as I've defined it today, has always characterized God's people as they are conforming to him, right? It wasn't faith in the crucified and resurrected Messiah. But it was thinking and understanding and judging as God did. It was owning the purpose of God and their own place in that. 
in their own place in the outworking of that scheme. This isn't about which mechanism gets me to heaven, faith or works. This is about understanding and binding ourselves to the God who is working, the God who is active, the God who has a purpose. And the men of old did that. And in that way, they were commended. They were commended to God because they were, by even the leading of the Spirit within them, understanding and living and directing their own lives and purpose and will and heart according to the mind of God. So there's the continuity of faith that then helps us to understand that commendation of faith. Faith is is faithfulness. It's just right relation to God, and that has always been the mark of human authenticity. But as human existence in conformity to God's intent for his human creature, which is what faith is all about, that has now come to its fullness in the Messiah. So faith in the God who is promised has become faith in the Messiah. Faith in God by the leading of the Spirit has become faith in the God who's manifest in the Messiah by the Spirit, by living union with that God. So a couple summary observations then in, in, in closing, uh, just to, to hopefully tie this up a little bit then as we move uh, moving forward into his examples of faith in, in terms of specific individuals. The first thing is that faith is a faculty of perception and discernment understanding. It's not wishful thinking. It's not believing that God's going to do this or he's going to do that or if he's good then this will happen and that will be the outcome. Or It's not that. It's a faculty that is wrought and, and empowered by the Spirit that accords with the truth of our own created nature and function as image bearer. So faith doesn't take away our natural faculties. If it did, then our natural faculties would not have been created and designed by God, right? But it actually, in a sense, delivers them from the fall such that the things that we observe and, 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 and can process through our senses now uh, through faith, are, we're able to understand them in truth. The second thing is that faith is a theological and a relational phenomenon. And therefore, it's a Christological phenomenon. Why? Theological in the sense that faith pertains to God, the God who is, the God who's spoken, the God who has acted, the God who has purposed, the God who has disclosed. But it's set in the, it's a relational thing in that it's us binding ourselves to that God who has spoken and acted. Binding him to, binding ourselves to him as he has actually revealed and disclosed. And that all comes together in the Messiah himself. Right? In Jesus we see and and embrace the God who has spoken and acted and purposed and is moving all things towards a final summing up. So faith binds a person to the truth by binding him to the God who is the truth. 
the God who discloses and imparts the truth of himself in Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the truth. The meaning of all things, including God himself, that meaning is bound up in the person and the work of Christ. And I know that's an all-encompassing statement, but it's true. You have to think about it, but it's true. So faith, therefore, because it's a theological, relational, and crystal, ultimately a Christological phenomenon, faith isn't belief in demonstrable truths. It's not believing, you know, we, we often do apologetics. I, or, you know, I grew up in the time when you had the Josh McDowell thing, faith that demands, or uh, is it what, um, evidence that demands a verdict. And, you, you know, you could show where did Cain get his wife and how did they get all those animals on the ark and where would the wood have come from to build an ark in the middle of the desert and, and what about this and what about that? And you just answer all of those questions and objections and people say, okay, great, where do I sign up for Jesus? Well, faith is not saying, okay, you've demonstrated reasonably that these things are true. I can appropriate them as true. Uh, you know, these are demonstrable facts, therefore I believe them. That's not what faith is. And as I've said several times, faith is also not wishful thinking. We use it that way. It, just even in popular culture, keep the faith, baby. Just, you know, just believe, right? Have faith that this is all going to work out for good or this is going to turn out this way or that way. And even as Christians, we do that. We say, God is good, therefore I believe this is the way it's going to happen or this is what it's going to look like. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's not speculative. It's not agreeing with demonstrable facts. All of those things are natural they have nothing to do with faith. Faith is agreement with God, the God who is, the God who is known in Jesus the Messiah, agreeing with him in mind, in heart, and will. It's an agreement that he affects by his spirit. And that agreeing with God by the power of the spirit, that's the sense in which faith has always existed. But now that dynamic has been Christified. Because agreeing with God is agreeing with the Messiah. And this work of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit in tying us into and, and transforming us in the Messiah. This issue of faith has been Christified. It's become now a matter of vital living union with God. So faith is a faculty of discernment and perception that uses our natural faculties. It doesn't set them aside. Secondly, faith is this theological, Christological, relational thing. And then thirdly, faith is a state of being. It's a way of being. It's not an action per se. It's not a transactional mechanism. And by transactional mechanism, I mean it's not a, a mechanism of salvation as the alternative to this thing called works. I either try to work my way into heaven or, or I do this thing called belief in Jesus and then I get to go to heaven. It's not, it's not a transactional mechanism like that. 
But it's not just a discrete action either. Faith is, is the essence of what it is to be human because it's the, it's the absolute unity of our hearts, minds, wills with God himself, all of which converges in Jesus himself, as I've said. And so in that sense, faith endures forever. It doesn't end when we end this life. Unless you can say that being of one mind, heart, and will with God ends when we end this life. And I know that in some ways I'm kind of caricaturing this, but I think some Christians, because they view faith as, again, this alternative to works, they basically say, okay, once I believe the gospel, faith is kind of done in a certain sense, and now I do this thing called obedience, which looks like, uh, you know, works of sanctification and mortification and all of that. So faith is what I do when I believe in Jesus. Then now my life becomes more pragmatically oriented. Faith is believing leaving information. Obedience is doing certain things. Faith endures forever. It's the idea of faithfulness. It's authentic human existence in relation to God, his creation, ourselves, even the human vocation. Why do we exist? What is the human vocation? How many people even think about that question? How many Christians think about that question? Is our salvation just a way so we can go off to heaven and do what we want for all eternity, whatever that's going to look like? What is the human vocation? That's the truth of what it is to be human. That's where meaning is found. So faith is a state of being. And then lastly, faith isn't counter to reason. And it's not counter to deference to facts. Faith isn't checking our brain at the door. You often hear that from people, don't you? Well, I can either, you know, have faith or I can believe my eyes. And I can believe the facts. Faith is checking your brain at the door. And in some sense, that goes back to the enlightenment and the idea of of a two-story reality, the upper story and the lower story. The lower story is this world and all we experience and analyze and understand and discern through our natural faculties of reason. And then there's the upper story, which are all these mystical spiritual things that we can't get at and we just believe them in some sort of sense. And so faith is tied to these things out there and then there's the way we actually get on with life here in this world. And that mindset largely continues to this day. Just one way in which we see that is, again, an artificial antithesis that we create between faith and science. And I'm not saying that science has all the answers. It's subject to, you know, science is nothing more than human inquiry into things we can judge with our senses, It's imperfect, it's growing, it's evolving, right? It's developing. But this idea that faith and science are antithetical, I can either believe science or I can believe the Bible. And the situation with Darwin made a huge contribution to that in the 1800s because that was the first time where it, it became popularized to think about origins of the creation outside of God doing it. 
a natural explanation of origins, the origin of the species. I think it was what, around 1850 or something like that. And now all of a sudden Christians felt this need to defend the fact that God is the creator. And so now we started reading Genesis in terms of a scientific explanation of origins to combat Darwinism. And even to this day, it's creationism versus evolution as, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying evolution is true, but we, we, we want to somehow make the Bible be making that sort of an argument. We think you can either believe the scriptures or you can believe what science has to say. But the truth is that all truth is God's truth. And as I was saying last hour, science as a discipline and faith don't conflict. They operate and interact with two different realms. Not that there's no overlap in there, but they really are working in two different worlds. The scriptures are concerned with questions and issues that are beyond the reach of scientific inquiry. Remember, again, truth is a matter of meaning, and meaning is about why, purpose. Science can't answer those questions. Science can map out the human genome, but it can't say why man, right? Science and faith operate in two different realms, but they don't disqualify. You don't have to say, well, either I believe God or I believe science. And that's kind of where we've tended to gotten in our culture. You kids in school, are you going to be an idiot who believes the Bible or are you going to believe science? You're going to believe what we know to be true. We can't use the science or the Bible as a science textbook. Science gives us the what, scriptures, the who, and the why. And when we try to turn the Bible into a handbook for living or a science textbook, then it becomes the servant of our observations, our convictions, our agendas. And that's happened throughout history. You know, when, when people came forward and said, hey, you know, the earth isn't flat. Oh, yes, it is. The Bible says it is, and we're going to burn you at the stake. Or, you know, when astronomers said, you know what? Actually, the earth revolves around the sun. The earth isn't the center of the universe. Oh, yes, it is. The Bible says it is. We're going to burn you at the stake. Well, does the Bible really say those things? No, but it becomes the servant of an agenda, a servant of tradition, a servant of established dogma. And, and that's not its function. The scriptures are the, the, the place, the, the, they're, they're, they're the nurturer, they're, they're the uh, fruitfulness of our faith and our faithfulness. Our faith is bound to the scriptures, let me put it that way. But as the scriptures tell the story of the creator God and his all-encompassing purpose for his creation, centered in the person and the work of Jesus. That's the sense in which the scriptures nurture our faith and faithfulness. The scriptures don't nurture our faith because they tell us how God created the world or why the human genome is the way it is or how to fix a bicycle tire, right? That's not what they do. They tell us how to know this God. They answer the question of why, unto what end, for what purpose.
And that's what faith is about. Faith brings the future into the present, the future that God has determined, the goal towards which he's working. It brings that into the present, so we live in the light of that. Even now, saints, as those who inhabit God's kingdom, raised up in Christ Jesus, seated in the heavenly realms in him, isn't there a very real sense in which that is a future consummate thing that we live into in the present? Faith owns the reality of the future because it owns the reality of the present as the process of the outworking of God's purposes. Faith gives substance to that which is yet hoped for. And faith enables us to certify as real and authentic that which we can't see with our eyes. It operates, it allows us to get at truth in a way that our natural faculties can't. And it is the work of the Spirit, and it is through the Scriptures. But we, we've got to use the Scriptures properly. Or they become just another agent of our agenda, not an instrument of our faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to think about these things. I think very often it is easy for us to just have terms and ideas and, and kind of Christian concepts in our head, but they, they really just kind of swim around in the ether. They're, they're not really defined. They're not understood. They're not in any way fleshed out or, or related to one another. And, and we just kind of in a certain sense, drift through our days with a general sense that you're out there and and that you're going to do something that's good and that somehow we can expect good in our lives and, and one day it's all going to be okay. But that's not what faith is. And that certainly is not the kind of faith that's going to hold us steadfast in the challenges and the difficulties and the vicissitudes of life. The faith that commanded the men of old was a a being bound over to the truth of what you had made known, such, such that these individuals could endure everything that came. Just as Habakkuk himself, he had to experience the Babylonian slaughter, but with the confidence that the God who used Babylon would yet restore Abraham's household. He would yet fulfill his good word to Abraham and David. And even as the sword was running through them, they were dying in the joy that God will yet fulfill all his good word. That's what it is to live by faith. That's what it is to be a faithful people. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be that way. But it means that we've got to also be a knowing people, a learning people, a a discerning people. Not a people who just have confidence in, in idle notions in our heads, but a people who are bound over to the truth that you have revealed to us in this word as it has been incarnate and fleshed out in the life and the, and the work and the words of Jesus himself. Help us to be Christians indeed. And may we be servants of that ministration to one another, laboring, as Paul said, to see each one grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. May we truly be a faithful people that faith in that sense will be our commendation to you. And we will show ourselves to be people of the Messiah, the faithful one, and sons of Abraham, children of the covenant.
Do this work, Father, and bind us over with a zeal and a commitment to pursue you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.